Hello, I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine, and you're listening to the Philosophy Now radio show. Uh, tonight, we're going to be talking about civilization and its discontents, which is Freud's social theory, or the, his rather pessimistic theory of society. In it, he concludes that permanent guilt and unhappiness is the price we pay for being civilized. And we're, it was written in 1930, and we're here to d- investigate what relevance this theory still has for us, and in what ways the debate has moved on. I have with me today David Bell, who is president of the British Psychoanalytic Society and a consultant psychiatrist at the Tavistock and Portman NHS Foundation Trust. Hello. I've got also Edward Harcourt, who's a lecturer in philosophy at Oxford University and a fellow of Keeble College. Hello. And Alex Gath, who's a freelance anthropologist. Hello. OK, um, so we're going to go straight into it and really start with the basic question to doc- Dr Bell. What questions is Sigmund Freud trying to answer in civilizations and his discontents, and what sort of answers does he come up with? Um... Civilization and its discontents comes in the latter period of Freud's work. It's written around 1930. And the question, I suppose the fundamental question that Freud is facing is uh, why are we all necessarily unhappy? And Freud approaches this question from a number uh, of different perspectives. The paper, the book really, comes in the, as I say, in the final phase or the third phase of his work. So it comes after what we call the structural model. That's the model mm-hmm. that everyone knows as uh-huh. super ego, ego and id. And it also comes after Beyond the Pleasure Principle which is his paper where he puts forward the concept of the death instinct. Freud, as you put it very succinctly at the beginning um, asks a question um, what do human beings uh, pursue in life? What makes them happy? He doesn't approach this from a kind of uh, external philosophical point of view, but in a sense more from what I would call a naturalistic point mm-hmm. of view. Meaning that, what, sorry? Well, that would be if we look at men dispassionately, men and women dispassionately, um, and observe them, what can we conclude about what they strive to do in life okay. and what makes them happy? Now, Freud concluded... uh, Well, Freud thought the things that make us unhappy derive from three sources. Uh That is, the inevitable pain and frustration that comes from our body, Mm -hmm. the pain that comes from having to live in the natural world, which brings us uh, unpredictable disasters and which we cannot control, and the pain derived from the fact that we have to live with other human beings. And he felt, as you put it so well, that... In order to live in culture, we have to make a big sacrifice. Uh And that sacrifice is that we have to suppress. In order to live in culture, man has to suppress a number of his primary instincts, particularly the sexual and particularly the aggressive. And he believed that we pay an enormous price for that. We all necessarily suffer the sure, cost of that. I, th- I think many people would not disagree with it so far. It's, I think it's probably went going into the details which are more problematic. I mean, how would, would philosophers sort of agree with this uh, concept of society, Edward? Uh, well, I never quite know what to say when people ask me what I think as a philosopher. Uh-huh. I, I never know how to disentangle what I think as a philosopher from what I think as an otherwise thoughtful human being. So I'm going to ignore that bit of the All question. Right, okay. <laughs> um, I mean, I think, I think that um, one thing that David said I'd like to pick up on is that Freud uh, approaches the question, what, why are we all necessarily unhappy from a naturalistic rather than from a philosophical perspective? Yeah. Um, I think that's a false contrast because actually precisely because Freud is pursuing this inquiry into what are we like, what do we strive for, what are our fundamental aims, that places Freud in a very, very long philosophical tradition which began with Plato and Aristotle. He's actually addressing some of the oldest questions of philosophy about human nature and the relationship between human nature and although Freud is shy of the word good um mm. the good life for human beings so so i think precisely insofar as he is addressing those questions in a naturalistic spirit um he is being a philosopher if you like sure but um, i think maybe psychoanalyst 
sceptical people would say that he's not using a philosophical method, he's using maybe a scientific method. What would you say about that, David? Well, uh, Freud... Um, you know, remarked that uh, he, on more than one occasion, that he wasn't a philosopher. But uh, given the breadth and scope of his work, uh, uh, he's made fundamental contributions to our understanding of what it is to be human. And so it would be, I agree with Edward, it'd be very hard to say they're uh, not philosophical contributions. Mm. But I think what he, he, he... You could say that his way of going about things kind of eschewing, as far as he can, grand metaphysical assur- uh, uh, assumptions, in fact makes him a much better philosopher in that sense. Yeah, I mean, but no, my question is really, what is different from his method to, say, a traditional philosophical method, do you think? Well, Freud's understanding is derived from his observations mm-hmm. of uh, himself, mm-hmm. his patients, and uh, literature, and from the world around him. Freud's uh, most fundamental contribution was not the discovery of the unconscious, which in fact was well known. He often said the poets and the philosophers preceded me. And of course, that's right. Mm-hmm. You could see this in, mm-hmm. in uh, Greek plays. You can see it in Shakespeare. But what Freud did was that he discovered what we call the dynamic unconscious. Uh-huh. That is, not only that parts of the mind are not known to us, but is they're not, they're not known to us not because they're weak ideas, mm-hmm. which was what the psychologists tend to think at the time, but because those parts of our mind that are not known to us have strong ideas, and those strong ideas are disruptive, and so are held back and repressed. So Freud discovered the, uh, if you like, the di- what we call the dynamic unconscious mm-hmm. or the repressed unconscious, and he put forward a theory of, uh, of mental life uh, very much building on this concept that there'd be a constant conflict in our minds Mm -hmm. between the various dynamic forces. And he... The relevance to the theme of civilization, its discontents... Freud asks at the beginning of that book, as he sometimes does, he doesn't know whether he's wasting the the print uh, and saying something that's entirely obvious. But, of course, it's not entirely obvious. But the point where he actually makes, uh, in the book, the fundamental contribution is where he talks about what we call the way that authority is internalised. That is the way that the prohibitions and inhibitions that we see as part of culture get set up within the individual. And Freud believed that that's where we pay a high price. Okay, we're going to probably talk in a bit more detail about that later. I just want to ask Alex, as an anthropologist, I mean, is there anything that uh, is universal to anthropological theory that's been said so far, or do anthropologists differ in their view of society? Well, I think that the most important thing about uh, modern anthropology compared with how anthropology was done in the earlier part of the 20th century, including when uh, Freud was writing, Mm -hmm. is that nowadays people don't tend to think of anthropology as establishing some theory about the state of nature, Mm -hmm. what is naturally the way human beings are. Mm -hmm. There's a number of reasons for this. I mean, and one of the key ones is if you look at all the different cultures and societies around the world, they're all extremely intricately adapted to their particular circumstances. And it's totally arbitrary to say that the Kung of the Kalahari or the Yamamano of the Amazon are nearer to the state of nature than city gents in London, really. I mean, they're all adapted to wherever they live. And... um, But people did tend to theorise much more like this in Freud's time, and I think it's a weakness in both um, anthropology of the period and a bit psychodynamic theorising too. I I think you could probably adapt Freud to say, you know, even in these so-called primitive societies, then the same dynamics occur. Um, I mean, is that what Freud would say, uh, do you think? Well, I I don't know what what Freud would say. I I, I think um, that... Freud was, in, in a sense, a humanist in the deepest sense of the term. I think he would have very much subscribed, uh, was it Terence that said that nothing human is alien to me? Mm-hmm. So uh, Freud, at a certain level of, of thinking, would, think, would say that we were all much more like each other than is apparent. Yeah. Um, uh, now, in particular, of course, that's true about the so-called normal and the so-called abnormal, for the abnormal so-called reveal aspects 
of what a human being is like. Now, I think Freud would have taken the view, or doesn't really matter, I would take the view, that because of the very materiality of our bodies, mm-hmm. because of the experience of being dependent in early childhood, which Freud does actually emphasize mm-hmm. many times, this leaves a very powerful uh, mark mm-hmm. on, our, on our, our developing personality, um, that there, there are a certain fundamental aspects which I would think um, one should never say you know, universal in, in some absolute way, but I would say for all practical purposes are universal, how they get mediated through certain cultural forms is, of course, another question. Uh Uh, So their mediations can be different, but I I would think it highly unlikely that there's any society that's functioning that hasn't, the individuals haven't internalised some form of prohibition. Yeah. um, As... Not as a philosopher, as a thinker, (laughs) uh, Edward, I mean, do you you think that there's other ways of looking at um, becoming civilised than uh, than just necessarily internalising your, I mean, repressing your sex drive and your aggression. Yes, well, I think that's one of the the big questions raised by this book um, is to what extent civilization really does carry the price tag in terms uh-huh. of frustration that Freud says okay. it does. Um, and I think the, pictures are e- the, the question is even more complicated than that because um, I think that there isn't really one theory of socialization that Freud is giving voice to in this book. There's okay. more than one. Sure. So I think in order to kind of get to the answer to your question, we need to just take a little bit of a closer look at, uh, at the text itself. Sure. So in the first few chapters of the book, mm-hmm. Freud I think is just recapitulating the theory about civilization and its discontents, which, correct me if I'm wrong, David, he's already stated in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, and that was the one that uh, Grant, you said right at the beginning, namely that we, our natures are governed by the pleasure principle, but unfortunately... If Sorry, let me, uh, the pleasure principle for those listening means that uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it means that we're psychologically bound to seek pleasure and avoid pain as, as a fundamental drive. That's the idea. Yeah. Uh, uh, but unfortunately, if that was the only thing we acted on, we wouldn't survive. So yeah. we have to cooperate with others, therefore we have to repress these instincts, but this means that we're necessarily frustrated because although in civilization it's a condition of civilization that these instincts are suppressed, mm-hmm. they're not transformed. And here he is from civilization, it's discontents. He says, what decides the purpose of life is simply the program of the pleasure principle and and yet its programme is at loggerheads with the whole world. So in other words, our yeah. natures are such that what we have, the way we have to be in order to survive is not the way we fundamentally want to be. But I think you're, you're agreeing with him so far. You sound well, like you're agreeing with that's him. just part one, isn't it? Because yeah. then, in about chapter five of the book, suddenly he addresses this totally different question, which is why are human beings so destructive? Uh-huh. Yeah, And this leads him to a much more complicated set of thoughts about what civilization means and where we get to in the end. I mean, I don't know how much you want me to say about this, but we could <laughs> go on all night about it, I think. But where he gets to in the end is that it's not uh, the repression of instinct under the demands of survival that leads to uh-huh. discontent. It's the conflict between two equally basic instincts namely Eros and the death drive, isn't it? So he ends up with a somewhat different account of what the discontents of civilization really are than just this pessimistic picture that you know, we're, we're necessarily unhappy because we have to give up instinctual gratification. Isn't, isn't that right? Well, I'll, I'll bow out for a minute, but I don't think it is entirely right. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> Alex, anything um, you want to well, add? One of the things that may be implicit in what Edward is saying there is um, that one could have a kind of rather more constantly evolutionary view of society and culture and the way that that's affected human nature by evolving over a long period of time. Um, so civilization isn't like a dis, uh, discontinued... Yes, I mean, so, for example, it's not a matter of when we just have to get along with a few other people because presumably uh-huh. the human species has always, always been doing that. It's yeah. probably much more likely when we have to get along with rather a lot of other yeah, people. More than and um, and uh, th- there's a resemblance here between thinking about the development of the individual psyche as well. Mm-hmm. And Freudianism would have it that 
um, what happens in the first two or three years and theorising about that is absolutely critical and sort of sets the parameters for things thereafter. Uh-huh. And I, I wouldn't dispute that it's important. Of course, no. it's foundational. But people go on developing um, morally and socially, you know, well into their teens and their adulthood. And those are important parts of human nature as well. And you, you could say that at that, those later parts of life, people develop social instincts, people develop cooperative skills, people develop the ability to be part of language games sure. and organisations and so, and so on that, that emerge, and that's equally human nature as the, the drives of the squealing ba- baby and so on. Okay, um, okay. Um, it sounds like um, we're sort of broadly um, agreeing with these general social theory but maybe when we get into the details then it it becomes more contentious okay we're going to listen to a track now uh, by love and rockets and then then we're going to talk in more detail about the, the theory
Kennedy from Philosophy Now magazine, and you're listening to the Philosophy Now radio show on Resonance. Uh, I'm here with uh, Alex Gath, who's an anthropologist, Edward Harcourt, who's a philosopher, and David Bell, who's a psychoanalyst. And we're talking about Sigmund Freud. Uh, so, first of all, I want to ask uh, Dr. Bell, why does Freud think uh, conscience is an internalised aggression and that civilization is necessary for conscience? Well, the, the, the book has a number of different sort of arguments threaded in it, but one could say that one central part of the argument is this, uh-huh. that man, in order to develop, needed to form larger groups, and this necessitated uh, inhibition of violence. Mm-hmm. That, that inhibition of violence has a double register. It is both a precondition of the capacity to form groups and the outcome of living in one. Now, Freud then recognises later, and I think it's probably around the middle of the book, that there are two lacunae in his theoretical exposition, and Mm. I think this gets to the nub of Freud's theory. Because having established that this aggression has to be inhibited, he asks the question, what is the fate of this inhibited aggression. What happens Uh to it when it can't be directed externally? And secondly, how is this degree of repression achieved? Mm -hmm. And what emerges is that these two matters, that is, the new location of the aggression and the developmental process through which acculturation is achieved, that these are connected. For the aggressiveness is redirected from outside, Mm -hmm. inside, from the object towards the self, taking up residence in what Freud called the superego. It is as if through some... And I'll just read something that I've written. It is as if through some uncanny trick, the aggression that is repressed turns into the very force that represses it. The superego evinces a kind of relentless cruelty. And it was this that Freud noticed, that the superego, no matter how difficult one's childhood may have been, the archaic primitive quality of the superego suggested its derivations did not arrive, derive in any simple way from experience. Uh-huh. And he suggested what got located in the superego was an aggressiveness towards the self. Mm-hmm. And he related this to his concept of the death instinct, which I've developed in a particular way, which we may go into uh-huh. later. Sure. Um, OK, well, critiques from philosophy and anthropology? Uh, well, uh, there was a pa- pa- passage that David quotes in his paper from uh, Freud, where uh, Freud compares the con- conscience to, uh, he says, we set up an agency inside the person like a garrison in a conquered city. Mm-hmm. Now... I think that the phenomena of human conscience are very various, and that fits brilliantly one kind of phenomenology of conscience, mm. but I'm not sure it fits the whole lot. Mm. So quite often we can experience our own consciences as persecutory, as alien. You know, you can't really see the point of tidying the house or something, let's mm-hmm. say, but you feel you've got to do it. Right. In fact, you might go so far as to say, I really can't see the point of this. I'd rather just put my feet up. But I know that if I don't do this chore, then I'm going to feel so guilty. It's going to wreck any attempt at putting my feet up that I might Mm. try. So I might as well do the chore. But as it were, it's just a kind of Dane guilt that you're paying to your own conscience. That fits the that phenomenology, which is quite common, Mm. fits the garrison in a conquered city. So you're made it completely a conscious thing. You've not referenced the archaic unconscious qualities to these processes which are of course part of my daily work but presumably they have conscious manifestations in things that you're oh of course and And our models for thinking about them of course modelled on consciousness because how else could we think about them Mm. I think you're saying that there are different ways of looking at conscience than just aggressiveness is that right I mean, on on the face of it, it looks as if sometimes uh, we relate to our consciences as occupying powers, uh-huh. but sometimes we're kind of on the side of our own. Absolutely, Freud was clear on that. What uh-huh. does yeah. what does anthropology say about the, the the derivation of conscience that might be different from 
the normal Freudian account. Alex. Well, I, I'm in, intrigued by ideas that build upon the notion of the superego, but I mean, I do sometimes uh, wonder what it is that they uh, really tell you, unless they go into the details uh -huh. of group processes and yeah. cultural context and so on, the kinds of things right. that anthropologists would be interested in. I mean, it's rather obviously the case that your <laughs> superego is likely to be different if you live in a Amish society, isn't it, than well, if you live in a rather sure. Kind of I mean, I always took the terms. Not so obviously the case, really? actually, because one of the things that Freud pointed out was because you can take it, the superego will be different, I suspect, in various ways, but perhaps not in the ways that you think it would be. Sorry, can we just clarify here? Yeah. By superego, is it the same as a conscience? No, the con it's a bit like an iceberg. Uh -huh. The conscience is the surface, most um, superficial manifestation. Uh -huh. The uh, uh, there are layers of the superego which are deeply unconscious. But what so is that, it, For basically? example, people often... One of the most beautiful examples of it is people who are suffering from what call, Freud called an unconscious sense of guilt. Uh -huh. That is, they do not say, I feel guilty. Right. They just say, I feel ill. And we see people again and again who achieve something in life mm -hmm. and then become profoundly depressed or feel they're physically ill or they're going to right. die. So and they do not say, I feel guilty. What does because unconsciously, when one comes to understand it through dreams, through associations mm -hmm. and so on, uh, and also literary people have a very good grip on this because it often comes up in novels, one sees that what is going on is that the person feels guilty. Now, but they don't know they feel guilty. Sometimes they right. feel... So people often feel please, that, can you get directly to the... Secret people secret. often feel that success, for example, is unconsciously linked to triumph. Uh -huh. For instance, triumph over parents. And, of course, it is a part of us that wants to triumph over parents, that wants to uh, feel that we've done better than them unconsciously. That's felt as murdering the parents. Right. People might then feel guilty, feel ill, they're dying. So it's quite important to distinguish the conscious feelings from these more you know, unconscious right. relations. Okay. But the last point is that one of the things that is suggested by psychoanalysis is that as these are unconscious processes, transmission from generation to generation is not entirely predictable. For instance, a very indulgent parent mm -hmm. may sometimes end up with a child who feels very persecuted because what they've transmitted is their own I still super don't see ego. any superego in this, what you've said so far. You've, you've basically told me Freud's psychoanalytic theory, but you haven't explained what a superego well, is. The superego is. is an internal, if you like, it's a kind of internal structure that is felt to observe because internal, it not only punishes you, if you like, for what you've done, uh -huh. but it punishes for your thoughts. And because it operates in an omnipotent way, it doesn't necessarily distinguish between thoughts and deeds. Obsessional okay. people are relentlessly punished for things that they haven't done. What do, what do people think about this theory as non-Freudians? Would it be right to say that in civilization and its discontents, Freud is saying that the the origin of this uh, internal garrison is itself something internal, but that's turned against oneself, um, rather than that it's an internal echo of real external persecutors? And that's why... Does that relate to what you're saying about why it doesn't mm. matter what sort of parents you have? That no, no, that... No, no, because that would be a solipsistic system, wouldn't mm. it? And, and that's obviously not the case. It's very clear. I mean, Freud wrote elsewhere, if we had to choose a group of people who should have an analysis, if we could afford it, he would choose teachers, because teachers have such a profound effect upon children. So it's not saying that culture doesn't have an enormous effect. It's merely, um, if you like, talking about the way that effect is mediated. So... Culture may do an awful lot to ameliorate mm -hmm. some of the tendency towards a fierce superego. And this is, in fact, one of the things I talk about is what, what I've written about rather, is in what ways might culture itself support the more positive aspects of our nature? Mm -hmm. And to what extent will culture itself resonate and amplify mm -hmm. the most destructive parts of our nature? Okay. Alex, what, what do you think about this whole idea of the superego? Is it... I mean, well, is it I, 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 I think some of, of it is implausible, frankly. Yeah. I mean, like I, for take, for example, um, I think, um, isn't it gay coming out day today? I mean, take, for example, yeah. homosexuality, whether you're going to feel guilty about homosexuality. Mm -hmm. I mean, if your society or your culture simply has no hang-ups about that, right. I think it's extremely unlikely you're going to develop significant guilt about it. But maybe you feel guilty about something else. The cultural context... 
Uh, well, possibly. I mean, I mean, I'm not saying that human beings, you know, aren't prone to um, some guilt periodically in, their, periodically in their lives. But it seems to me that in something like this, the process of kind of uh, roughly speaking, uh, imitating and learning from in the process of a whole lifetime of acculturation, the sort of key opinion formers of your culture that is that is clearly the main kind of psychosocial process uh-huh. and 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 the fact that some people may develop a, a kind of habit of being um aggressive and hostile towards themselves mm-hmm. i mean i don't dispute that that's important but right. I, i'm not convinced that that sort of sheds a huge amount of light on as it were the origins of conscience it simply illustrates a kind of um a problematic form sure. that where, it sometimes where develops. does conscience come from because at least Freud does have an explanation of this, even if you don't, you know... Uh, well, well I, I, uh, as I said previously, I mean, people are socialised and socialised and re-socialised uh-huh. throughout their lives, right. and people develop skills at, um, uh, in a hard, complex interactions of cooperating and being kind and voting for the political party they believe in and so on and so forth, right the way into their, into their lives, and they ha- people never stop learning and to some extent never stop changing either. Okay. Uh, it strikes me as rather superficial. Obviously true. It's obviously true that we change in our, it, it, throughout life in the ways that you've said. But what we're trying to struggle with here is not these, uh, if you like, contingent changes, but whether there might be some aspect to our nature which has... Um, uh, a more enduring quality that can be refracted in various forms. I mean, if you take books like, for example, like Dostoevsky or Kafka in particular, where you see a world uh, of, of terrible persecution, of a primitive, archaic, menacing form, we don't regard that as just a book written by a strange man. We see this book as describing something of the human condition. We see that as all writers within a strongly Christian tradition, I think. Are reacting to the fact mm-hmm. that that's when the where they were brought up. I think that's what we see it as in the first instance. That's too contingent for me. Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay. We we're going to play another track now, which will be "Dead Man's Dream" by the Church, and then we're going to talk about um, how the th- for, uh, psychoanalysis might have developed its theories since Freud's time.
this is Grant Bartley. You're listening to Philosophy Now Radio Show. We're talking about Freud's book, Civilization and Its Discontents, which is Freud's social theory. Now, I just want to ask Dr. David Bell, who's a psychoanalyst, um, in what ways has your thinking or psych- and s- the thinking of psychoanalysts developed since Freud's... Uh, wrote his book in 1930. I mean, how does how has your thinking gone beyond Freud in terms of how you think about society? Well, Freud was very um, impressed uh, with uh, something about human beings that he felt that he described as our destructiveness, mm-hmm. and he believed that we are, in part of our nature, committed to destructiveness. But of course, in another part of our nature, we're committed to building, developing, understanding. Now, he used the concept of the death drive to under, to locate this conception. Um, I, if like, remain committed to the idea that there's something rather irreducibly destructive about us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, there's a part of our nature which seeks to um, protect us right. against that. Sure. So, if, if we could take it as uh, a reasonable assertion that there is something uh, fundamentally destructive about us, then we can ask a question which relates to some of the things that have come up already. Because we can ask, what kind of social structures might support those aspects of ourself, if you like, that are in the service of development, understanding, and what I would call thinking in the mm-hmm. sense of real engagement with life? And what kind of forces might act to support those parts of our nature that hate thought that oppose development Mm -hmm. and um, seek to destroy. And I think you're pretty down on modern society in terms of its destructiveness of our minds uh, in various ways. Well, the commodification of life. You see, I think what's happened, and it's increasingly happened, is what I would call the penetration of the market form into Mm -hmm. all spheres of life. And I think it's inevitable I think it's inevitable. It's part of the motor of capital that it has to enter all spheres of life um, and become a kind of raison d'etre of life. So other forms of human Mm organisation, one might particularly think of the welfare state or the public Mm -hmm. sphere, which are not oriented towards uh, the commodification Mm -hmm. process, uh, stand as something in the way of capital. Now, I think what it leads to is a fragmentation the pitting, if you like, of each of us against the other. Right. And the um, loss of what I call the vertical dimension of life. That is the feeling of oneself as living within time and one's existence as being having a historicity. Okay. Whereas what we have, I think, is what I call a horizontalization. That is, everything is of the moment. And the best example of horizontalization of everything being of the moment is the market itself. Okay. You used the word thinking there, David, in, in expounding your ideal of real, real engagement with life. Yeah. And perhaps I could just say a little tiny Please bit about do, that yeah. word, because it's, it's used as a technical term nowadays within psychoanalysis, mm-hmm. isn't it? And right. so you mean um, a kind of, not mere intellection, but a kind no. of engagement with mm-hmm. life that is neither purely of the intellect nor purely of the emotions, but that integrates both and that mm. is constructive and that engages with the deepest parts of our humanity. Now, I am absolutely with you in being a fully signed up member of the party of humanity. Mm. But I don't agree with you that the enemies of the party of humanity are just the private sphere and the market. I think the party of humanity has enemies both among fans of the market and within the state. And indeed, Mm. if one looks at... um, Something that's happening in my neck of the woods, education, the pursuit of the false marketization, the mm. pursuit of uh, false market ideals in the education sphere. Um, people are not selling the universities. These ideals are being pushed through by government and by civil servants. Mm. Um, similarly, uh, one might find uh, in the private realm, and I don't just mean in the family, I mean in forms of private association, um, you might, there are bits of the private realm which represent sociality and cooperation and forces that are all together for the good. So I think, you know, as it were, your, your ideals are my ideals, but I think it's a mistake to see this as public versus private. Well, everything becomes more terms. complex on further analysis, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> so um, 
do you think that capitalism is particularly destructive in terms of when you compare it to other societies, Alec? Uh, well, I agree with a lot of what David says uh-huh. about this, and I think that um, the problem in a, in a sentence, if I could put it like yeah. that, is uh, people have to deal with too many people too fast yeah. and too much uh, bogus information coming at them through a fibre optic yeah. tube, and it's 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 more than most people could take in. I mean, it, I'd add to the word thinking the word um, attention. I mean, one has to ration one's attention hmm. to increasingly trivial amounts of information in huge quantities. And, uh, and and that's the diet of one's life, and I mean I think I think it, I think it, since that's kind of global capitalism, it's probably likely that private uh, forces are are primarily in the ascendancy. I mean uh-huh. I dare say there's problems with the public sector too, but I think it probably is right that uh, corporations and such like that uh, are. Um, are, are pushing it faster than um, than Whitehall. Sure, this is an analysis that goes a bit beyond uh, what, what Freud said. I mean, <laughs> is it is it a common analysis among uh, psychoanalysts these days to talk about the social circumstances of their clients, for instance? Oh well, no, that's a different kind of uh, of discourse. Uh-huh. Um, when you're with your your client or patient, you just deal with whatever they 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 bring. Okay. Of, in terms of discussing a patient, say in a paper or in a, in a conference, or, of course one may reference various aspects of their social world. But I think that's not really what we're addressing no. here. Um, uh, you see, I think contra Edward. You see, I, I I do feel Edward's got a problem here because I think it's it's a bit <laughs> like you know he's talking about conscience and he talked at one level you see I think there's an unconscious if you like in society hmm. uh, not quite in the sense of archaic unconscious but we're, we're, we're actors mm-hmm. and, and we don't necessarily comprehend the forces that are pushing us uh-huh. and I think there's something see to me ideology if you like is to society what a symptom is to an individual. It's a kind of compromise and justification. Ideology for, being what? Well for instance if we take the free market uh-huh. as an ideological form uh, as a, 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 which has come to dominate our life. I feel, what I believe rather, is that although individual actors may not see themselves acting in that way, they are being driven, That, as, as Perry Anderson put it, the commodity form saturates every pore of our society. So it is no accident that during the Thatcherism, particularly during uh, the Blair years, Hospitals were pitted each other as if they were a market. Good hospitals or bad hospitals? What should happen to bad hospitals? Close them because they're bad. What should happen to good hospitals? Well, let them reorganise and, and grow. In other words, no question, how did a hospital come, become bad? How did the people be- working there lose hope? How did the hospital become good? It's a horizontal form of thinking based on, market, ma- on a market consciousness that is actually serves, I think, to destroy human capital. OK, do you want to reply to that? I, I, OK, but I mean, look, even if you're right you that nowadays the forces of evil are entirely on the side of the market and have got nothing to do with the public sphere, which I think is highly unlikely, I took it that you were making a much more general point about human nature and the way we relate to society and surely if you look back to say Stalinism I mean you can't say that it's the forces of capitalism there that are repressive and not allowing humanity to flourish. Of course not, it's such a funny default position people have in this kind of argument that when you try to talk Hmm. about, about a critique of capital and particularly capital in our modern age then it's assumed that you're some supporter of Stalin, no, or no, you're saying that, you or, the, or that everything is good in the public realm. Mm. Mm-hmm. I, you know, know a lot that's been improved in the in the public sector. But what I'm saying, at this juncture, mm. we are facing a critical point in the destruction of a kind of sense of community, and that's the community of the welfare state, health mm-hmm. service, and education. And I think. It's becoming forced into this market form because of deeper reasons, even if individual players may not conceptualise them that way. But it would be a gross misunderstanding of me to say that I'm saying everything in the public sector is good. That's just a polarisation. OK, okay look, um, let's just take, take the riots, for instance. You know, that's violence in society. How would, how would uh, different theories sort of explain that or look at that... Um, for instance, Freud's theory of internalised aggression. Is it? I mean, my my criticism would be that, for instance, that the rioters 
perhaps their problem is that they don't have any reason to regress their instincts for the sake of society because they can perceive themselves as low status anyway. Would that be a fair Freudian-type analysis? What, what I think, I, I think a, 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 a breakdown, uh-huh. I, I conceptualise this in terms of a breakdown. And one of the things about a, 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 when an individual has a breakdown, mm-hmm. uh, it's an eruption, if you like, mm-hmm. into consciousness of what's been held back. And the breakdown looks as if it's new, mm-hmm. but it's actually the continuation of something in a new form. Mm-hmm. And I, but a person who's having a breakdown often doesn't see that historical perspective. Right. They just see it in the moment. Often their relatives know the history. And I think whenever there's a social crisis, like particularly the political economic crisis, there's this tendency to think of this as something that's happening now, something new, uh-huh. which actually all it is is a revealing of what is underlying okay. our forms of social life. Now, the riots, I've got no pat explanation of the riots. I think it's going to be a lot more work mm-hmm. done to understand it. But what I'm very aware of is I mean, it, it's a bit like what was being said earlier about people being saturated. Yeah, people, are, Young people, for example, are saturated with the idea of celebrity and the idea that possession is a way to have identity. Uh-huh. Um, we've promoted, if you like, a world of greed, of commodity right. greed. And young people who are constantly being subjected to this, of course, um, when the barriers are lifted middle-aged off, people and, and middle-aged people. people, they're likely, you know, I mean, Wilhelm Reich wrote beautifully once. He right. said, the, the, the bourgeois sociologist approaches, asks the question, why do people steal? Right. Whereas the, the more, uh, 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 he would have said, uh, a Marxist sociologist, but he must meant a depth sociologist, asks the question, why don't people steal? Okay. Any comments? I, I think that when you asked what what is ideology, I mean, a word that could have come out there really is myth. I mean, I, I'm interested mm-hmm. in myths, of course, mm. and um, um, people um, construct myths for all kinds of purposes, but uh, typically they uh, often like to centre around them about uh, around key alternatives or oppositions about good and evil. And I mean, I think that um, the um, the uh, myth of um, the market as somehow um, the the mechanism that ensures uh, efficiency and mm-hmm. pro- productivity and so on is is a myth that is is so ludicrously simplistic yeah. that it, it has to be shored up with a rhetoric of kind of um, good uh, good and evil really sort of like um, crass incompetent bureaucrats are the state sector versus a uh, value mm-hmm. for money and okay. family values etc are of the private sector mm. but um and, and those kinds of myths will circulate in different ways when you get a crisis like right. the, the riots. So some people will take it that it's, uh, the, you know, the feral human beings coming out of the, um, the sewers or whatever it is. Yeah. And other people will take it, oh, no, it's um, collapse of values because uh, the bankers all help themselves to what they could get. Therefore, why, why shouldn't people who've got nothing do so? So, I mean, you will get three or four key conflicting myths that mm. will, will jockey for... It's a bit influence. like a Warshak test, yeah. isn't it? People mm-hmm. project onto it, their favourite. Yeah. Perhaps we could add in, I don't know whether this is a myth or whether it's true. The trouble is that if you've got these rival myths, you, it's all very old to say that they're all myths, but you need to decide which one to believe. But you might say there are, uh, another kind of account that's been offered is um, an absence of nurture, that people have false ideals and become greedy because it's a substitute for something mm. that they haven't mm. been given, namely love. OK, well, f- finally, finally, I want to ask what sort of solution or alternative ways of doing society can people sort of recommend or think of it? Um, what sort of world should we be trying to construct and how and what sort of aims and ideals should we have for that world? Do you want to answer that, Edward? There was a little bit at the end of David's lecture where he says that um, he talks about pockets of resistance small though they may be and we have already known some of its elements and I think that's very good mm. thing to say. Mm. I think the best that you can do is to try to stoke the fires that are mm. burning. You know, I don't mean okay. the fires of rioters, but, but w- for example, mm-hmm. the pursuit of the creation and enjoyment of certain kinds of art and the performance of mm. art. Mm. 
um, psychoanalysis, might mm-hmm. be said to be one. Um, and philosophy. <laughs> yes, and yes, science and uh, humane learning that I, goes on in schools and universities. I guess Absolutely. what I want to ask, so in, in light of this idea of like that we have to repress our natures in order to live together, how should we construct society to sort of um, ameliorate the effects of that? You see, that's what I would call a utopian question, right? Uh, I don't have any ready-made model mm-hmm. of how things will be better. I think what we can... And here I'm much more with Edward. I, I, I see all we can do is damage limitation at the moment. Right. That is, seek as far as we can to f- have forms of social organisation that re- resist the commodification of human life. And this can take various... Forms. And, of course, the arts mm-hmm. is an extremely important one. And it's no coincidence, is it, that... We live in an age and people could say, well, why do you want to go to university to, to um, uh, research uh, ancient uh, Greek law? I mean, how is that going to help you get more money? Mm-hmm. So we shouldn't finance that. And that's an age that we live in where, people, where it becomes possible to, uh, to say that. 30 years ago, that would not have been sayable by the right yeah. or the left. But now it is sayable. Everything has uh, a cash. So we, if we can create pockets which can limit that, mm-hmm. create pockets of alternative forms of social organisation, then I think that's the most we can do. I, I think we could be more sceptical than we are about technologisation. Here's yeah. a specific pro- pr- proposal. On trains, there should be one carriage where you are allowed to use modern noisy technology and all the rest oh, right. are quiet and civilised, not the other way round. OK, and you've been listening <laughs> to Civilization and its Discontents from the Philosophy Now radio show. Um, Next week, we're going to be talking about the nature of human experience with uh, Professor Barry Smith, among others. I'm Grant Bartley, and this is the Boomtown Rats.